1: I've had to expand it. I'm doing what I can to get this message out that I feel is so important to give people hope, to realize that despite what's happened to you and despite circumstances and setbacks, you can take control of your life and redefine yourself and change your course and make more of your life where you saw it going. Examine your roles and goals, your most important ones, and realize that life is about contribution, not accumulation. I appreciate this opportunity to expand my circle of influence and be a little terrified to go outside my comfort zone. And that's right now, besides working with my family and my grandkids, that's my most important work that I'm doing at, at what people would say a retirement age. I'm 65 and I my most important work, I feel, is, is yet ahead of me.
2: How you day, how you day. That was the voice of Cynthia Covey Heller. If the name Covey sounds familiar to you, that is because Cynthia is indeed the daughter of the late great Stephen R. Covey. Today's episode is unpacking Stephen's last big idea or his last lecture, how he decided to teach people what the mindset of living a life in crescendo is about. The crescendo mentality is a powerful leadership principle that can be applied to all stages and ages in life. And Cynthia was involved in the beginning, she became a co author and is now passing on her father's teachings. I really hope that you enjoy the episode. I hope that you take a moment to reflect, and I hope that you pause to share this with your loved ones, because there's nothing like embracing a mindset that can change your life. And I believe this is one. Enjoy the episode. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of As Told by Nomads. And today, I have a very special guest. Her name is Cynthia Covey-Heller. Now, Cynthia Covey-Heller is the co-author of this book. If you're watching on YouTube, it's called Live Life in Crescendo. Your most important work is always ahead of you. She co-authored this book with her late father. Yes, her father was working on this book years ago before his death. And there's a lot of things that we're going to dive into this. But Cynthia herself is someone who has held multiple leadership positions in women's organizations. She served as a PTSA president. An organizer for refugee and food pantry volunteer. And she's currently working with her husband, Cameron, as a service volunteer helping the employment needs. She graduated from Brigham Young University, BYU. For those of you, she's very, very present in the Utah region. So I want to welcome author, teacher, speaker, and active participant in the community here. Cynthia, welcome.
1: Thanks so much, Tayo. I've looked forward to being on your show. And you're so nice to have me on. Oh,
2: well, the pleasure is mine. I always love having authors on, because as someone who studies human behavior, I believe that authors do that to some degree. You've been known as the matriarch of your family. You're the oldest of nine.
1: Yeah, don't point that out, the oldest, but I'm called the mother hen of nine. Well, you say don't point that out. I'm the oldest of three boys, so I always identify with older siblings. I keep them in line since our parents are gone. I have to be the mother hen and watch over the brood.
2: Absolutely. And for those that don't know, Stephen Covey was very, very well known. He was known for Seven Habits of Highly Effective. The very different versions, people, teens, all those things. And so if anyone is thinking about that, he's one of those people that shaped a lot of literature and leadership literature in the United States and the world. But I start there because you asked your dad a question and you asked him if he was going to do anything more
1: successful. I insulted my dad one time when I said, hey, dad, are you going to ever write anything as good as the seven habits? You know, he was joking around, but he's like, that insults me. Why do I get up every day? Am I one and done? Are all my best ideas and my advice and thoughts contained in the seven habits? Why do I get up and pretend to work every day and to write and to teach? You know, he said, not bragging, but believing this. My best stuff is yet to come. I still have important things to get out there. And one of them is this book. This was his personal mission statement, the last 10 years of his life, Live Life and Crescendo. And because I spoke to him about this and I had a passion for the topic, he said, I've got so many projects going. How about if you interview me? and get some ideas on this book. And then let's make it a different book. Let's do it around this one idea, live life in crescendo, and fill it with inspiring stories of famous and non-famous people who live this crescendo mentality. We did that for a few years. We worked together on it. I'm the oldest of nine, but I also have six kids of my own. And I actually have 21 grandkids that are fill my life and cause me to live in crescendo every day. and I've been active in, in a lot of different things, so I wasn't able to finish it before he passed away. I feel like this is a sacred stewardship, kind of to be a faithful translator of his vision for Live Life in Crescendo, his last big idea.
2: I love what you translated. The book is in two parts, this crescendo mentality and this concept of your, your work, your most important work being ahead of you. I want to start off with the first part, though. Can you break down what that crescendo mentality is you said this is very much his mission statement but what exactly is a crescendo mentality
1: the crescendo mentality is like a new paradigm it's like putting on a pair of glasses that you can see everything through this lens and through this perspective and if you think of the musical symbol crescendo it starts with a point and ends and goes out i'm on the video showing that it extends a crescendo in music if you go to a concert it builds in energy and power and strength until it just fills the whole arena wherever you are. It's a crescendo It it keeps going and the lines never touch. It increases. The opposite is dominiendo, which is the opposite sign, which starts wide and then narrows and it slows in energy and power and influence and eventually comes to a stop. And so the idea to live the crescendo mentality means That you are constantly in your life looking to grow and to learn, to redefine yourself if needed, to start over, to improve and keep believing like the second part of the book and you were very perceptive that there are two parts to this, the crescendo mentality and then the second part is believing that your most important work or contributions are still ahead of you in your life. What a great optimistic thought when you get up to think I might have my important work and contribution still to come. What is it? I
2: think about the world today. I think about what's happened with the pandemic and I think about, you know, everything where we we're experiencing anything ranging from suppression of mindset and, and people or pandemic or you know, even a recession. And a lot of people have this idea of seeing life as a career. Now you said in the early part of the book, you say you should see life as a mission. And it's hard for people to Missionize, if that's a word, their life, because it's so much, there's so much pressure, there's so much to do, and for them, they can't envision seeing it that way, where they they are on the mission to be the best version of themselves. So how would you guide an audience who is struggling to separate that mindset of mission and career when it comes to life?
1: Tayo, my dad taught that life is a mission, not a career, and I understand what you're saying that that seems overwhelming, that seems huge when some people are struggling with setbacks and with reality of what they're dealing with in life right now. The thought that every person has a unique mission to find within themselves something that they're good at, something that they can help somebody else with. And the most successful missions are blessing and helping other people who are struggling. And oftentimes when you help somebody else who and pull them up and mentor them, it solves your problems too. It helps as you look outward And you many times heal inward. This mentality teaches that despite, and I talk about four different areas of life, stages and stages that we go through, and there are many more, but the belief that you can improve, that you can get better, that despite your circumstances and your setbacks, life can be good again. And if I could give an example of this, Tayo, I've got a great story in the book that you probably know that's one of my favorites that really exemplifies the crescendo mentality. And that is about a man named Anthony Ray Hinton. It was in the late 60s in Alabama, and this man was framed for two murders he did not commit. He was in a lockdown facility at work 15 miles away from these murders, but in this small community in Alabama he was framed for these murders because they couldn't find anyone else to blame. He didn't have a good attorney, was trusted in the legal system and knew he was a good person, knew he was innocent and just was devastated when he finds himself on death row, literally on death row for two murders. He didn't commit basically racial profiled for these murders facing execution in the years to come. And he is devastated and he shuts down. He decides, you know what, I gave up my best. I am innocent. And if they don't believe me, I'm gonna quit. And so he threw his Bible under his bed. He shut down. He didn't speak for three miserable years to any guards, to any inmates that were next to him. Anytime he had a chance to talk, he shut down. And he was living in Dominiendo. He had no influence. He had no abilities to help others or to for others to help him except for talking to family and friends, he was living in Dominiando and a miserable life. Well, at two in the morning, one morning, he heard his inmate next to him sobbing and begging someone to help him with his pain. That awoken ray, the compassion that he always had, he realized, he said, I don't have a choice whether I'm on death row and I've been wrongly convicted, but I have other choices. And that knowledge rocked him. He discovered Hate is a choice, despair is a choice, but so is compassion and love. And he broke his silence of two years and spoke to this man who was a complete stranger, found out that his mother had just passed away and he was devastated and didn't know if he could go on. He had no hope in his life. His mother was so important to him and he spent the night comforting this stranger and talking to him, helping him, talking about his mom and laughing and talking about stories that things that she had done for him. And it awoke in Ray something that he decided, I am going to exercise my circle of influence. I have very few choices, but I do have some choices. And from that moment on, he became a light and a beacon to his fellow death row inmates and even the guards who had come to him for advice. He used his humor, his hope, his belief that things would get better and improve. He started a book club. He got some privileges they don't normally give because of... His charity and the choices that he exercised. And soon he was affecting other people in the prison. Well, he caught the attention of Brian Stevenson, who started Equal Justice Initiative, which is an incredible organization that helps people that are wrongly convicted. After another 14 years, he was literally incarcerated for almost 30 years. And Brian Stevenson took his case to the Supreme Court of the United States, where he was completely found innocent of all charges. So he comes out of his prison after almost 30 years, he looks at his family and friends and he says, the sun does shine. And this became the title of a book he wrote four years later, which became a New York Times bestseller, telling of his journey, basically from dominiendo to crescendo and how his life is true in his case, because he exercised what I've called the crescendo mentality mentality. Now he is an advocate, a speaker, an author. His life is just exploding. His most important work is still to come. He is blessing and helping other people that are unjustly imprisoned. And his influence, which was nothing when he was shut down in his prison, has now exploded across the United States and even the world. It's an incredible story. Are you talking about mercy? Just mercy. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah Brian yeah. Stevenson, he's the lawyer for just the book and the movie Just Mercy. He works with Brian Stevenson now. He said they took my 30s, my 40s, and my 50s, but what they couldn't take was my joy. That's probably one of the worst setbacks or challenges you'd ever face, but yet he exercised that little bit of circle of influence that he had, the choices that he had, and it changed the whole trajectory of his life.
2: You know what this brings up? This brings up this concept of timelines and time. So in many cultures, you're supposed to get married at this time. You're supposed to have a job at this time. You're supposed to have experienced success, blah, 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 blah. We get into this thing where we compare. You talked about joy being stolen. Comparison, they say, it's the thief of joy. How do we figure out how to navigate life in a way where we're not comparing our expectations to the expectations others have placed in us?
1: Tayo, that's something we all do, isn't it? We compare and contrast ourselves to other people. I'm not as successful as the guy next door. Look at their family. They've got it all together. They have these opportunities. I don't. We all have that tendency to compare. In the first section of the book, I talk about a midlife crisis that you might be going through. Maybe you wake up and you're 50 years old and you think, you know what? I thought I'd be further down the road than I am. I thought I'd have money. I thought I'd be successful. I thought my family, I thought I wouldn't be divorced. I thought I wouldn't have these things happen to me. What's happened? What's happened? I talk about that we need to define success. There's two perspectives in this midlife area. And one is that we define success differently than how society defines it. They define it as having money, having accumulation, having things and prestige and a big name and popularity. That's what my father would call secondary greatness. Primary greatness is your character, is what you are when no one else is around your values. Primary character is Being successful in your most important roles. What are your most important roles in life without comparison to others? To me, to give an example, my father showed that what his most important role is a story I tell at the beginning about me going to San Francisco. Would it be okay if I shared that one?
2: Yes, please. It's one of my favorite stories.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I was 12 years old. And like you said, I'm the oldest of nine. And I was the first one to go on this trip with my dad. He was speaking at some convention and he invited me to come along to San Francisco. Well, I live in Salt Lake City and I've never been to San Francisco at 12 years old. And I'd heard about the magical trolley cars. And so we planned a great weekend, a great date after his speech that he would be giving at the hotel. Half the fun was talking about it and planning ahead, anticipating it. So our plans were that I would I would swim and enjoy myself at this nice, fancy hotel while he's speaking. I'd show up at the very end of his talk and we would go and catch a trolley car, ride the trolley car all around San Francisco, which was so magical. And then we would go shopping and buy a few clothes for school in these fancy stores I've heard about. And then we would go to Chinatown and have Chinese food, which was our favorite. Then we'd take a taxi back to the hotel get a hot fudge Sunday, go swimming before it closed, and just have a great night. So it was all seeming to go as planned until at the end of the talk, when my father was making his way toward me, all of a sudden, one of his best friends that he hadn't seen for years got to him and they embraced. And he said, Stephen, I'm so happy to see you. I haven't seen you for 10 years. And I came to your speech for the very purpose to invite you to come to dinner with my wife and I. We'll eat down on the wharf and catch up. It'll be great. And my dad said, oh, I'm here with my daughter. We're having a a daddy-daughter date. And he said, oh, she's welcome to come along too. And I thought to myself, oh, I don't want to be stuck with old people eating seafood that I hated. What about my trolley car? It's going down the tracks without me. I was devastated. But I thought my dad would probably rather be with his friend than a 12-year-old all night anyway. And so my dad seemed excited to be with him. And he said, put his arm around him and said, oh, Bob, it's so great to see you. That sounds wonderful. But not tonight. My daughter Cynthia and I have a special date plan, don't we, honey? And he winked at me and that trolley car came back into view. He grabbed my hand and we went out the door and it really touched me. I said, but dad, don't you want to be with your friend? You haven't seen him for so long and you love talking about him. And he said, hey, I'd much rather have Chinese food with you, wouldn't you? Let's go catch that trolley car. I wouldn't miss that for anything. This showed me that his important role... In life at that moment, was being a father to me. It built trust in me in my relationship. It was a huge deposit for me that my father would choose me over his good friend who he would love to sit and talk with. It kind of laid the foundation of my relationship. And my childhood, looking back, taught me that small things in relationships are big things. Anyway, talking about this midlife stage and about, you know, you wonder, what can I do to make my life a success? See success differently, being true to your most important roles. And secondly, if there's something in your life that maybe you, you hate your job, maybe you feel underutilized, maybe you're overweight and unfit and unhealthy, take responsibility. Use your R&I, as my dad called it, resourcefulness and initiative and change. Redefine yourself. Start over. Take responsibility for it and act.
2: I love that story so much because, yes, it does highlight a point you bring in the book, which is people are more important than things. But you just said something that I haven't been able to get in my head. You know, it's this idea of identifying the roles in your life and identifying whether or not you're successful in those roles. I think a lot of people approach success the way you said it, where they think about, I don't know, external, what other people have said I'm supposed to do is I'm supposed to do that. But if I'm thinking, I'm thinking, what is my role as a brother, as a man, you know, as, as a friend? How am I being successful in that? You're going to find a joy that is more innate as opposed to what you think you're supposed to do. And I think out of that, you are then able to even create boundaries if you you need to, because you know what is needed in your environment. And you're also able to find and attract people that you need in your life in order to help you become that best version of yourself. So I, I was just thinking about that.
1: I love that what if you set goals around your most important roles? <laughs> what if you said, okay, I'm a mother, I'm a father, I'm a brother, I'm a son or daughter. I'm a business person. I'm a, I'm a leader in my work. I'm a mentor. I'm a community volunteer. I'm a caring person that looks across the street and sees a neighbor that's lonely and whose grass is yellowed and he t- can't get out and, and work in his yard. I can cross the yard and, and help him, be a friend to him. And and do what i can what are your most important roles in life and set goals around them one man didn't have a that i wrote about didn't have a family but he had a passion for he was a medical doctor and he moved to an underprivileged country and was was the only person for hundreds of miles that people could come and be checked for all sorts of things he diagnosed it he treated it he got his sponsors back in the united states and fellow doctors to give him med-
0: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today.
1: Medicine. To Sometimes he would fly these people that he saw to other places in the world to get treatment. That was his most important role. He saw a need where, you know, there's no doctors here within hundreds of thousands of miles. I mean, hundreds of miles. I'm the only one. And his most important role to him was being there for these people that needed help. He was successful in that. He wasn't a father or wasn't able to have that role, but he had a most successful role in meeting needs of the community where he saw great disparity and he acted on it.
2: By doing that, you become a servant, essentially, but a servant of your highest self. And I think One of the greatest things we forget as people is that we are contagious. This is good or bad. We pick up the bad habits, pick up the good habit. But if we start modeling what your father did, I'm sure you've done the same thing for your siblings as well as your kids and grandkids. And they see, you know, that Cynthia wouldn't want that. No, Cynthia (laughs) would like that is not that. And so there's a beauty that comes with the integrity of self.
1: My father defines leadership as communicating another's worth and potential so clearly. That they are inspired to see it in themselves. So think about communicating another's worth and potential so clearly they are inspired to see it in themselves because many times we don't believe in ourselves. Think about when somebody believed in you when you didn't even believe in yourself or saw your potential. If you ask that question, most people can think in their mind, okay, I had a parent do that for me, I had a friend. I had a teacher at school who, who saw that I had something in me more than what I saw in myself. So we could be that kind of a, a mentor or leader to someone else. If we are aware, look around us. Sometimes you don't have to look further than your own family.
2: I wanted to ask you that because you said family, but you said something about circle of influence earlier. And then there's a chapter in the book, which is about expanding your circle of influence. This is a tricky one because some people, right? You know, the environment you're from, can shape who you are, but when you become more aware of who you are and what you want to do, how do you then proactively decide to expand that circle of influence? What are things you've seen that have worked?
1: Uh, you're right. Like Ray, he had a very small circle of influence when he started, he exercised that, he acted on it, he did what he could, and slowly it expanded. You're right. Some people are in situations that are super tough, and their circle of influence is very small, but as you bridge it, as you decide, okay, I can only influence these two people that I work with, but I'm going to be my best self to them. I'm going to inspire them. I'm going to work my hardest. I'm going to build them up. I'm going to be a mentor to this young intern that works with me that doesn't really have much faith in himself. Or I'm going to, you look during the pandemic, look at the circle of influence that increased for people that saw a need and acted without being told, Look at the garages that were filled with food. People would say, I'm collecting food this Wednesday at 10. Anybody has anything to drop off, bring it at 10. I saw this in my own neighborhood. Garages were full of food. People were anxious to do something. They didn't know how to act. They didn't know what to do, but they wanted to do something. And all it took was someone who took the first step and began and said, you know, I'm going down to the food bank uh, tomorrow. And if anyone has anything they'd like to donate, I'll take it with me. They were overflowing in what they took. I saw a woman who was in a, in a Title I school that had a a lot of refugees that were really struggling with school because basically because they were hungry. They didn't have much nourishment. And after school, they had a tutoring program, but the kids couldn't focus because they hadn't eaten well. And so she saw this small need. And here she's just a, a parent. And she talks to other uh, people in the PTA and says, "Let's open a small food pantry. Let's put some after-school snacks in this closet that I found, you know, in the school that the teachers said aren't using. Let's fill this closet and let's ask for volunteers to bring them." Well, pretty soon she had that full closet full. Spread the word after healthy after-school snacks, and it's entirely full. One little boy said to her, "Could I take some extras for my family at home? They're, they need it too." And she realized. After school snacks isn't going to cut it. I need to expand this. So again, she widens her circle of influence by asking for help from teachers, from the PTA, from the community. And right now I've been down there. She has a food pantry that she took over one of the biggest rooms in the school next to the cafeteria. I've seen a hundred or more people line up every week with grocery bags to fill their entire bags full to feed their families just based on her starting small, asking, getting involved, and pretty soon her circle of influence, she's a leader, she is expanded, and what good she's doing for the whole community. If
2: you're bringing up an example of someone who is intentional and also asked for help, I think those are two actionable things that people can pick from that. It's this idea of intentionally saying, this is what I want, this is what I hope, we've reached this level, I would love to see if we can expand it. Do you know anyone else, And that thing can happen with books or careers. Like I'm actively looking for a mentor. I have studied in this field. I'm curious to see if anyone knows anyone. This is what I'm willing to do. And you can do that in multiple ways. I think that's the idea of combining, you know, people are more important than things, but also intentionally announcing who you are to the world. And so that stays in in the brain of, of someone else who could potentially be in a position to help you in that sense.
1: I like that. It's like a domino effect. You know how we've all thrown a stone into the lake and seen the ripples and how it starts, you know, small a little ripple and then how it spreads and goes out. Doing good, doing service, looking for someone you can mentor can affect so many other people. I'm thinking of a man named William Henley, who was just as a little boy, his father died, leaving his mom uh, single with six kids in England in the 1800s and they're very poor, and he goes to school, and he said his headmaster, who was a brilliant man, was kind to me. I needed kindness more than I needed anything in my life, and he was kind to me, and he saw something in me that I could be taught to love poetry, and so he taught him about the great poets, and he instilled in this love for him, and he he believed in him when no one else did. Well, he had a difficult life. He ended up getting tuberculosis, and spent three years in the hospital and had to have one of his legs cut off. He ended up dying at 53, but not before he wrote the great poem Invictus by William Henley. That later, you know who that inspired? Nelson, Nelson Mandela.
2: Mandela. Yeah, <laughs> that's
1: right. He was in prison yeah. and who ble- reads the words, I am the master of my soul. I am the captain of my soul. I am the master of my fate. He uses that to inspire himself to hang on during his 28 years of imprisonment and to inspire other prisoners. He was asked to read that to them and interpret it and help them get hope. Well, what happens at 71? He's released. You think, oh, my gosh, his life is over. He's 71. What can he do when he comes out of prison? And yet, four years later, he's the president, elected the president of South Africa, the first black president with William de Klerk, who was the president as his vice president and he's dismantling apartheid. His influence is spreading all across South Africa and across the entire world. So one person influencing another, William Henley being influenced by his mentor to hold on and that it was good in him and to learn about poetry. Him writing poetry, writing Invictus, inspiring Mandela, inspiring others, and soon it is spread literally across the world. That's showing a great example of circle of influence that just keeps growing.
2: 100%. The audience knows Nelson Mandela plays a, a huge role in, in my formative years, and is my biggest inspiration for what I did today. But I love specifically what you said, though. My favorite story about Nelson Mandela is the idea that after that 27 years in jail and coming out as old as it was, you would think, well, my best years are beyond me. But you can say that his best years were well, well ahead of him.
1: His most important work was definitely to come in the next 20 years, wasn't
2: it? The next next 20 years. And that goes to that second part of, of your book where you, you and your fathers, you, you say your most important work is always ahead of you. The mindset to work that way, though, it, is hard when you have repeated setbacks, in a sense. Do you have a thought about that and how to work through those setbacks and not go to dimiendo
1: Setbacks life-challenging setbacks are the hardest thing I think we face. I have that in my book. And that's my favorite section because I've included inspiring stories of people who purposely chose to live in crescendo when they definitely could have gone into Dominando. Mandela could have said, you know what, I'm angry. He could have emerged an angry, bitter man. Instead, he said, I knew if I did not leave my bitterness behind, I would forever be a prisoner. So he forgave his captors. He didn't hold revenge when he became in power. People were afraid that he would take revenge on them. He had his captors on the front row of his inauguration. He was generous with his forgiveness, and he wasn't a prisoner because of that. I'm thinking of someone named Elizabeth Smart in Salt Lake City. I don't know if you know her story, but as a 14-year-old girl, She was kidnapped by knife point out of her own room and taken just five miles away into this camp up the mountains, five miles away from her home and could not be found. It went on national news about Elizabeth Smart being kidnapped and taken by this crazy person that was very evil. For nine months, he kept her with this equally crazy wife. They tortured her. He raped her daily. He took everything he could from her and her life. It was only a miracle through prayers and through her determination to find a little bit of hope and light that she survived. And nine months after nine months, she was freed. And so Elizabeth smart. You think, okay, the worst thing that could ever happen to a child just happened. Her childhood is destroyed for nine horrible months. What is going to happen? Well, her mother told her when she came back home, she said, this evil man has taken nine months of your life from you. Don't you let him take one more. The best thing you can do is to be happy, Elizabeth, to live and to be happy and to forgive and forget what's happened and go on with your life. And that will be the greatest justice of all. And so Elizabeth courageously at 15 now goes on with her life. She graduated from college. She served a volunteer experience for her church. She got married. She has three children. She started the Smart Foundation. She's an advocate for victims and people that are kidnapped. She's a powerful force, an advocate for all the people that have had this horrible thing happen to them. And she says, don't let it define you. Don't let it label you the rest of your life. She's not a victim. She has conquered. She has come out victorious. And now she is an advocate for thousands of people who have had struggles like this. So Terrible things can happen. But Elizabeth said, even though I would never wish this on anyone, and this was the hardest thing I've ever gone through, she said, I am grateful for my experience because I wouldn't have cared enough to get involved had this horrible thing not happened to me. Now I have compassion and I understand what others have gone through. And my goal is to help them, not the rest of their life, feel like my life is ruined, but to go on and live in crescendo. There's a great quote that says, there is a beauty and power in someone who has seen very dark days, yet chooses to be a light to others. This is Elizabeth Smart was.
2: It's tough hearing stories like that, because sometimes we live in a world that hopefully is now becoming more receptive to the importance of mental health and how therapy can help you navigate trauma and traumatic experiences. And a lot of the people that come out of those traumatic experiences will say, They had to learn how to forgive themselves, accept themselves, understand the next path, and then see that they're more than that experience. When I was listening to you, it sounds like that's what she came to. I'm more than the experience. Not that you're dismissing it. You're accepting that it happened to you, but you're seeing yourself as bigger than that.
1: She didn't let it define her. And she realized she had three choices. It could destroy her, it could define her, or it could straighten her. And she chose the hardest path. She chose to have it strengthen her. It would be easy to let it define you and say, this horrible thing happened to me in my childhood and I can't function. You know, I can't go on. And people would understand it'd be justified because of of what she endured. But what a light and beacon she is to others who suffer similar setbacks, who maybe get cancer, who go through an awful divorce and maybe lose their custody of their children and have, or maybe have business fails or you lose your job or your health is awful, and you've got a disease, sometimes you can't control what happens to you. Most likely you can't, but you could always control your response to it and your choice. Michael J. Fox is another great example. He's a great actor, and in the height of his career, he finds out in his 20s, he has Parkinson's disease, and he is devastated. He said, I drank myself to death almost. He said, I was in denial, and all I could do is try to escape from it. And then I realized that if I learned about my disease and if I treated it better, I would feel better. He realized that I, the only choice I don't have is that I can't choose if I have Parkinson's or not. All the other choices are up to me. And so from that point on, he decided to be the face of Parkinson's. He testified before a subcommittee hearing in Congress without taking his medication so that he could show the members of Congress how important it was to fund medication for people that couldn't afford it because they could see him twitching and moving around and see his speech affected and what it would do for him. Courageously did that so they could see we need this money for medication. And then since then, people would say, yeah, he played great roles in I Loved Him and Back to the Future, some of those great classic shows, but they would say his most important work was definitely ahead of him. His greatest role is now an advocate for Parkinson's, and he has recently contributed a total of one billion dollars. Can you imagine that? He's raised one billion dollars for Parkinson's Foundation.
2: Uh, Well, I mean, we we could go on and on about the stories of life, but your book, Live Life in Crescendo, your most important work is always ahead of you that you co-wrote with your father is chock full of life nuggets and wisdom. And so as you all are preparing for the book to come to your shelves and you are preparing for the launch, where can people find the book?
1: It's on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and Simon & Schuster. You know, our hope is three things to help people, to inspire people to choose to live your life in crescendo, rather dominiendo. That takes some introspection it takes looking carefully within and saying what am i what choices am i making right now is this moving in the right direction am i choosing to live in crescendo am i shutting down like ray did when he first came into prison am i just not expecting anything of myself am i just accepting what's happened or am i going to take that little opportunity and make some choices about it and then the second thing is to instill hope in people that regardless of what happens, regardless of a midlife or even a pinnacle of success. Look at a Jimmy Carter that what he accomplished when he didn't get reelected, how humiliating that was to be at the pinnacle of success, the president of the United States. And yet, what does he do when when he becomes a post-president? He works for Habitat for Humanity, he establishes the Carter Center. Truly, his greatest work was still ahead, even after the presidency. And then another important part which we've discussed is life-changing experiences. And then a part we didn't discuss was the second half of life. If you find yourself in your 70s, 80s, 90s, don't shut down. Don't have the tendency to think, well, I'm done. You know, don't look in the rearview mirror at your past failures and successes. You're driving a car. You wouldn't get very far if you're looking back over your shoulder or you're looking in the rearview mirror. Look ahead. What's ahead of me? Okay, I don't work anymore. I'm older, I have these limitations. What can I do? Where can I contribute to my grandchildren or great-grandchildren, to a need in the community that I see? What can I offer? Because there in the second half of life, you have more skills and more talents and more resources, more abilities than you ever have, a lifetime of experience to offer people. So my dad always said, don't think of two alternatives, work or retire. The third alternative is contribute. Although you may retire from a job or a career, never retire from making meaningful contributions in others' lives.
2: Wow. Well said. Well said. The only thing I have left is my final question here. I stole told by Nomad's here, my mission statement is use your difference to make a difference. So thank you. Say that again. It's use your difference to make a difference.
1: Make a difference. I love that.
2: Thank you. Thank you.
1: The mission statement of this book would be the meaning of life is to find your gift. The purpose of life is to give it away.
2: Love it. Love it. The final question is in line with that statement of mine is how do you, Cynthia, use your difference to make a difference?
1: I had to live in Crescendo to finish the book. (laughs) It took me 10 years. I'm a first time author and I'm speaking on podcasts. This is a little out of my comfort zone. You're doing great. (laughs) I've had to expand it. I'm doing what I can to get this message out that I feel is so important to give people hope, to realize that despite what's happened to you and despite circumstances and setbacks, you can take control of your life and redefine yourself and change your course and make more of your life where you saw it going. Examine your roles and goals, your most important ones. And realize that life is about contribution, not accumulation. I appreciate this opportunity to expand my circle of influence and be a little terrified to go outside my comfort zone. And that's right now, besides working with my family and my grandkids, that's my most important work that I'm doing at at what people would say a retirement age. I'm 65 And I, my most important work I feel is, is yet ahead of me.
2: Well ahead of you. Well, there you have it. Cynthia Covey Heller. Thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been a great reminder for me personally, and I'm sure many listening as well, but yes, our greatest work and most important work is always ahead of us. So I'm looking forward to what you inspire. Thank you, Kyle.
1: I appreciate you having me on.
2: Pleasure is mine. Kings, queens, and royalty Till next time. Use a difference to make a difference.